want to pray. I just heard this. You know the, the kid that got thrown off the ledge at the Mall of America? He's doing much better. They, they actually, the parents said, this is their quote, Jesus saved our son's life. And it is because of the prayers of the saints that have gone out for that little boy. So let's pray. Father, we do continue to seek you for this little boy, and we ask that you would bring total healing. Thank you that there's no brain injuries, there's no spinal injuries. Thank you, God. I continue to bring total healing for him. I can just imagine the emotional healing as well that needs to take place. And bless this family. Father, we also think of that uh, tragedy, um, the, the killing at the Jewish synagogue. We ask that you would just be with those families there. Help them, Lord, going through this great struggle. Please bring comfort. And we also ask that you would teach us from your word. You're an awesome God. You're incredible. You have a great plan, a plan of revival, and we want to get in on it. So help us to understand this book, Zechariah. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, turn to Zechariah chapter 1. We're going to look at, we're actually not going to look at verses 7 through 21. Uh, I'm going to have to cut it short, probably through 17. And uh, just that's what happened the first service anyway, so probably will happen the second service is my guess as we're walking through this. Uh, page 539 in the Bibles we give away. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. Someone will bring you one. It's our gift to you. We're going through the book of Zechariah verse by verse. And today we're looking at how God is a jealous God, okay? Uh, the world is in a mess, isn't it? And, and it's because there's a spiritual battle going on. Most of us recognize the physical realm, but we don't see the spiritual realm. We don't recognize the spiritual battle that's going on that really is uh, fighting and wrecking this world and, and coming to a conclusion, perhaps, uh, who knows when. But... With that, and we see this in the book of Zechariah, with that, there, God is going to raise a standard, and we're going to see a great revival take place as well. And even if we're not in the end, God is a God of revival. Now, we've been looking at the book of Zechariah describes this great revival to come, and so we're learning some things about it. We've already learned last week how one of the things for our part for revival is we need to repent. And the, and the great importance of repentance. But now we want to recognize we can't make revival happen. We don't have the ability. God is the only one that can make revival happen. And so we need him. But here in this passage, we see what a revival God looks like. And so here, we're going to learn some things about God. And, uh, and that, that revival God, he is a jealous God. He is jealous for his people. In fact, look at verse 14. I think this is the center of this whole section really reverberating out from it. Verse 14 says, so the angel who was speaking with me said, proclaim the Lord of armies says, I am extremely jealous for Jerusalem 
and Zion. God is a jealous God. This is found throughout the scriptures. Let me read Exodus 34, verse 14, for just one example of this. Exodus 34, verse 14 says, because the Lord is jealous for his reputation, you are never to bow down to another God. He is a jealous God. Now, we typically think of jealousy as ugly, right? As bad, as a uh, petty and hurtful, right? And rightfully so. In fact, in Galatians 5, verse 20, it is listed as one of the sins of the flesh. So how can God be a jealous God if jealousy is one of the sins of the flesh? We need to understand Right and wrong jealousy. Typically, jealousy is bad when we are judging someone else's heart, okay? We can't judge each other's hearts. We don't know each other's hearts. And that's where, like, couples, maybe they start having these feelings. Well, I just think you're doing this or that or whatever, you know? That kind of jealousy, that's what it's saying. That's wrong. That's bad. Because we don't have the ability, and we are not supposed to judge other people's hearts, But if you have the facts, for instance, if your spouse is cheating on you, okay, and you've got the facts, you should be jealous because you made a covenant together, right? So there's every reason in that respect to be jealous when you have the facts. Now, God knows everything, doesn't he, right? So God knows everything, and he actually even knows our hearts, So he can judge hearts when we're not supposed to. And so he is a jealous God in a righteous way. Uh, Let me read uh, Stephen Rummage's definition here of God's jealousy. He says, God's jealousy is his passionate commitment to that which rightfully belongs to him. Whether it is his glory that cannot be shared with another, his right to be worshipped as the one true God, or the affections and devotion of his people. Now concerning that last part, J.I. Packer also speaks of God's jealousy. He says, God's jealousy over his people, as we have seen, presupposes his covenant love. And this love is no transitory affection, accidental and aimless, but is the expression of a sovereign purpose. God is a jealous God. Now, Zechariah is written to the Jewish people, national, ethnic Israel. It applies to the church as well because we have been grafted in, as Romans chapter 11 speaks, but it is written to the Israelites. And so those who think God has abandoned Israel don't realize that God's jealous love is no transitory affection. He placed his love upon them, he chose them, and he doesn't stop his choosing. And so we want to recognize that. This is written, when it's speaking of revival, something's going to happen. God isn't finished with his people yet. I can't wait to see it happen, okay? But it's also written to us as his people, the church, okay? So keep those, both of those things in mind. Now, starts out in verse 7. We see the mentioning of his vision. Let me read verse 7. 
on the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, son of Edo. Now, here, it's kind of fascinating, and I'm not going to go into the details, but from this dating, we know exactly when this vision took place, okay? And not only just this vision, we're going to see there's going to be a series of eight visions that he's going to describe, and in all of these eight visions, he actually had them all the same night, okay? And it specifically took place February 15th, 519 B.C. That's how specific we can get because of the information he gives in verse 7. Now, but the rest of it, and as we go through the book of Zechariah, it's not the easiest book to interpret, okay? Anybody read it? Okay, it's kind of, you know, you're like, wow, what's going on? Because it's apocalyptic literature, okay? So, so there's some things that I think will be helpful for us in reading this where there's sometimes some strange things going on, as we'll see in the very first vision, okay? Uh, So some ground rules here, all right, Uh, for interpreting this kind of literature. First of all, look for the main point. When you see each of the visions, for instance, look for the main point. Don't get bogged down in the details. Uh, In fact, in my uh, uh, study Bible, it has a little note here. It says, some details of the vision... Myrtle trees in the valley and chestnut, brown and white horses may have been included to enhance the sensory vividness of the scene rather than to convey symbolic meaning. In other words, we're not supposed to try to figure out what every little detail actually meant. You know, why are the different horses colored differently? You know, what's the brown mean? What's the, you know, that, that's not necessary. That's probably just to give us a visual picture. Okay, they didn't have movies back then, right? So this description, it kind of goes, you're like eyes wide open. Wow, what's going on here? But look for the main point. Now, that doesn't mean the symbolism isn't important because symbolism can be important, but we need to be skeptical unless it's obvious because most of the time he will say, this means that, and he will help us when he really wants us to understand the symbolism, okay? So... Uh, Keep that in mind. Uh, look, uh, so symbolism can be important, but it's okay to be skeptical. Because otherwise, if you just try to figure out, oh, I think the brown horse means this or that or whatever, we can make it say anything we want to, can't we? Okay, and, and that's not good. We want to discern what did God mean by putting this text in this place, not what do I want it to mean or what do I think it means or whatever. So it's okay to be skeptical. Now, uh, so symbolism can be important, uh, but look for other uses in the Bible. Many times these, in fact, Zechariah is quoted in the New Testament a lot. So we look in the New Testament, we look in the rest of the Bible to help us understand what might be going on in these references, especially for the symbolism, and especially how it points to Jesus, okay? Because Zechariah actually talks a lot about Jesus, both his first and his second comings. Okay, That's what we see in this. And so finally, my fourth point, there is an eschatological focus to be aware of. Okay, So sometimes it seems like he's talking about the time in which Zechariah is living, 
But he's also not just, he is talking about that time, but he's also talking more fully, more thoroughly about when Jesus comes, but also even when he comes his, the second time. So keep all of that in mind as we read through this. Um, the kingdom of God comes in two stages. It comes in two stages. First, the inauguration of the kingdom spiritually when Jesus came the first time, and then physically at the return of the king. So there's a spiritual and a physical component to the kingdom of God. Right now, we battle the spiritual enemy mainly through prayer and truth encounters. So uh, people are not the enemy. Okay? People are not the enemy. Now, sometimes we do, in fact, speak out against evil because the evil hurts people, but the people are not the enemy. Let me give you an illustration, okay? Abortion. We speak out against abortion because it hurts people. It hurts the babies It hurts the people getting abortions. It hurts all of society. Abortion is bad all the way around. So we speak out against abortion, but we're not opposed to the people who get abortions. We love them. We, they're trapped. They're uh, under the influence of the enemy, and et cetera, et cetera. We want to help rescue them. So we don't see the people as the enemy. The spiritual forces... That's the enemy. And so prayer. So keep that in mind because right now there's this spiritual battle going on. We battle the spiritual enemy. Uh, The kingdom of God is both now and not yet. So we don't take over cities and countries. Okay? Now we do influence cities and countries. Uh, We don't take dominion over areas. The Bible never talks about that. But we do have influence as we love our enemies. That's how we respond. And we trust in God. God will take care of us. That's what we're going to see in our passage. He takes care of us because he has compassion on his people. The second vision, which we won't get to, it shows that he, he punishes his people's enemies. Okay? Uh, so, but he's the one that does that, not us. Right? We seek to reach out to people. So first, so let's look at this first vision where we see that God's jealousy moves him to have compassion on his people. Verses 8 through 17. I looked out in the night and saw a man riding on a chestnut horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the valley. Behind him were chestnut, brown, and white horses. I asked, what are these, my lord? The angel who was talking to me replied, I will show you what they are. Then the man, standing among the myrtle trees, explained, they are the ones the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. They reported to the angel of the Lord, standing among the myrtle trees, we have patrolled the earth, and right now the whole earth is calm and quiet. Then the angel of the Lord responded, 
How long, Lord of the armies, will you withhold mercy from Jerusalem and the cities of Judah that you have been angry with these 70 years? The Lord replied with kind and comforting words to the angel who was speaking with me. So the angel who was speaking with me said, Proclaim, the Lord of the army says, I am extremely jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. I am fiercely angry with the nations that are at ease, for I was a little angry, but they made the destruction worse. Therefore, this is what the Lord says, In mercy I have returned to Jerusalem. My house will be rebuilt within it, This is the declaration of the Lord of armies, and a measuring line will be stretched out over Jerusalem. Proclaim further, this is what the Lord of armies says, my cities will again overflow with prosperity. The Lord will once more comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. All right, so what's going on here? Okay, let's kind of walk through it. Now remember what's going on, the setting here, okay? Zechariah and his people are back in Jerusalem. So the Israelites are back in Jerusalem after they had been exiled to Babylon. In 586 B.C., the Babylonians came in and punished them, destroyed Jerusalem, wiped out the temple, killed a bunch of people, and exiled the rest of the Jewish people into Babylon. And they were there for 70 years, and then they returned under Cyrus the Persian, and now they're back in their homeland, but they still feel like exiles because they're under Persian rule, etc. Okay, so that's what's going on. Now they're back in their homeland, and here we see this promise. God's jealousy moves him to have compassion on his people. In verses 8 through 10, we see God's army patrolling the earth. So it says there, there's this army, and that's the horses, right? Okay, The horses, the meaning of the horses, the horses would have uh, brought out a, shown that this is a military context. The horse was the military weapon of this time period. So clearly they are God's army patrolling the earth, okay, uh, protecting his people. So we see here God is in control. And then they report to this strange figure called the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord. Now, the one thing we want to make sure we we get clear from this passage is that the angel of the Lord is on our side, okay? That's a good thing, especially when you discover who the angel of the Lord is, okay? Because this isn't the only time this figure has appeared in the Old Testament. All throughout the Old Testament, this mysterious figure shows up. And what scholars have discovered is that this angel of the Lord is somehow at times called God, synonymous with the Lord, but also sometimes interacts with the Lord. So somehow he is God, but he also interacts with God. So how in the world does that work out? Well, it's a theophany. Okay, you always got to learn something new every Sunday, right? Okay, a theophany. That means when God takes a physical form temporarily. He manifests himself in some, uh, some way like that. That's called a theophany. Um, the uh, burning bush for Moses. God appeared in the burning bush, right? It actually says the angel of the Lord. Okay, 
All the way through, in fact, Genesis 16, Exodus 3, Judges 6, just a few examples of the angel of the Lord who is somehow is God but also interacts with God. That figure, and scholars are pretty much in agreement, it's Jesus, all right? Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, and by the way, that makes sense. He is God, but he has interaction with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. See how that works? And so this, here we see Jesus, and Jesus is interceding for his people. He's seeking the Lord for his people. Let's look at this here now, okay? When the angels, if you remember, I mean, the... uh, the army that's out on patrol, it says they come to the angel, verse 11, they report to the angel of the Lord, standing among the myrtle trees, we have patrolled the earth, and right now the whole earth is calm and quiet. Now that sounds like a good thing, doesn't it? It's not. It's a very bad thing, because the calm and quiet is referring to the enemies of God's people. So the enemies are calm and quiet. Everything's going well for them. And that's why the angel cries out to God, How long, Lord of the armies, will you withhold mercy from Jerusalem and the cities of Judah that you have been angry with these 70 years? How long, O Lord? So he's crying out. Why are the, does it seem the enemy is winning? How long are you going to uh, wait to show mercy on your people. How long that phrase, that's a, a lament formula that we find throughout the Psalms. Have you read the Psalms? Okay. The Psalms, you'll see this, they cry out to God, how long, O Lord, will you not come and rescue us in this particular situation? Come and comfort us in our time of need. This is, this is a, a cry of passion. And by the way, that's how God wants us to pray. Okay? He doesn't say, just pray like this, oh, Lord, please come, or just repeat the same prayer over and over and over again. You don't see that anywhere. No, it's crying out to God from the depths of your heart. How long, oh, Lord? And then you get the response. God is looking for people who are passionate for him and for his glory. And so here we see Jesus is interceding for us. By the way, other passages in the Bible bring this out as well, that Jesus prays for us. Romans 8, 34, 1 John 2, verse 1. John chapter 17, the entire chapter is a prayer of Jesus for his people. But then in particularly it says, how long will you withhold your mercy since you've been angry these 70 years? Okay, now what's going on there, the 70 years? Well, These people would have remembered Jeremiah's prophecy, okay? Jeremiah was a prophet who prophesied during, just before and during the time when the Babylonians came in and wiped out Jerusalem. Jeremiah said they're going to come, they're going to wipe out Jerusalem, but in 70 years, you're going to be able to come back. So he actually predicted that then. And so they're waiting there, we're wondering, When are you going to fulfill this? Because they're already back in their homeland, aren't they? But yet they still feel like they're not. One of the reasons is because there's no temple. There's no temple. In fact, it's really fascinating when you look at the dates. Okay, 586 B.C. is when the destruction of Jerusalem took place. 
586 B.C. You know when the temple was finally rebuilt? 516 B.C. How many years? 70. Okay? And we know all this is all true facts here, okay? God predicted it, 70 years, then it takes place. But, the, but the, when Zechariah is writing this, the temple hasn't been rebuilt yet. So they're waiting. So they still feel in exile because they don't have the temple. They don't have the Lord there, okay? How long, O oh Lord? Now, God's response to this is awesome. Here we see in verses 13 through 17, Yahweh loves his people, Yahweh loves his people. He starts out in verse 13 that he will comfort them. So verse 13, the Lord replied with kind and comforting words to the angel who was speaking with me. Once again, these people, when they heard these words, they would have seen that word comforting and they would have remembered Isaiah. Okay, so now we've got to go back to another prophet. Isaiah wrote around 700 B.C., so a couple hundred years before the destruction of Jerusalem. He predicted that the Babylonians were going to rise in power and destroy Jerusalem, but he also predicted that the people would come back home and be comforted. In fact, Isaiah, the whole book, chapter 1 through 39, is all about the destruction. Chapter 40 through 66 is thereafter and God's comfort. Look at chapter 40, verse 1. This is how the second major section of Isaiah begins, and this is what they would have picked up on when they heard these words uh, that the Lord uh, replied with kind and comforting words. Isaiah 40, verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and announce to her that her time of forced labor is over. Her iniquity has been pardoned and she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. That means full and complete punishment took place. But that they're pardoned, they're set free, they're back home. Comfort my people, he says to, says to them, because God is the God of comfort. Uh, he comforts them. Now, how does this apply to us? Okay. I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. This is critical that we get how God works out his comfort in his people. In, first, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, this is what he says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. He comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction through the comfort we ourselves receive from God. Watch how this works, okay? God is the God of comfort. We're going through a difficult time. Anybody here ever gone through a difficult time in their life? <laughs> right, okay. So we're going through an affliction, whatever that, you know, any kind of difficulty in our life. And God says he's the God of all comfort. So as we seek him, he pours out 
his comfort. We receive his presence, his power, his love. He either removes us out of the situation, so does a miracle, or he gives us strength to endure through the difficulty, but either instance we recognize that was God. Have you had that happen? Okay. Okay, if you've experienced that, the second part's very, very important because he says, so that you will then comfort other people who are going through similar situations with the comfort that you have received from God. It always has to flow through. We allow God to use us as a conduit. We receive his comfort, but we also let it out, and we comfort other people because we can relate, right? So the one thing we can't do is stay focused on ourselves, If you're just focused on yourself, just navel-gazing, you will never get out of it. But if you receive his comfort, his presence, his power, and then reach out and look for others who are experiencing similar difficulties in life, then you start blessing them, I guarantee you, you'll feel better too. Okay? This is God's plan. God uses us to bring about his comfort. But God is the God of all comfort. And this is what he's sharing to them, that he will comfort them. So that's the first way he loves his people. Uh, by the way, Psalm 34, 18. I love that. It's a real short verse. I need to memorize it. It's a great, great verse. Psalm 34, verse 18. The Lord is near the brokenhearted. He saves those crushed in spirit. That's our God. He is the God of all comfort. And then we see how he loves us. He has mercy on his people. Verses 14 through 16a, he says, So the angel was speaking with me, said, Proclaim the Lord of armies. I am extremely jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. I am fiercely angry with the nations that are at ease, for I was a little angry, but they made the destruction worse. Therefore, this is what the Lord says, In mercy I have returned to Jerusalem. Here we see that God has mercy on his people. He's angry with the nations that punished his people because they overpunished them. And he does not like that. And so then he says, so I'm going to return. In mercy, I have returned to Jerusalem. Now, as you're reading through that, you very well, especially if you're just reading through the whole book, you very well might have just skipped right on past that little section where he says, I have returned to Jerusalem but this would have stuck out like, you know, I don't know, banners to the original people because they had God leave them. And now he's promising to return to them. They would have also remembered Ezekiel. Yeah, they knew their Bible, which you should too. If you're the people of God, you know your Bible. That's just one of the rules, okay? Okay, they would have known their Bible. And in Ezekiel, Ezekiel portrays, he's one of those other weird prophets with lots of strange pictures and stuff. But Ezekiel, I want you to turn to Ezekiel and watch how he portrays God leaving his people. In Ezekiel chapter 9, he starts out and he's, giving a, he's having a vision 
of God at the temple. The temple is represented the presence of God. That's where God resided, okay? Look at John, uh, Ezekiel 9, verse 3. Then the glory of the God of Israel rose from above the cherub where it had been to the threshold of the temple. So now the glory of the Lord representing the presence of God, it's lifting. That's the point we're seeing. Now I'll skip to verse chapter 10, verse 4. Then the glory of the Lord rose from above the cherub to the threshold of the temple. The temple was filled with the cloud and the court was filled with the brightness of the Lord's glory. It's beginning to move. Skip to verse 18. Then the glory of the Lord moved away from the threshold of the temple and stopped above the cherubim. The cherubim lifted their wings and ascended from the earth right before my eyes. The wheels were beside them as they went. The glory of the God of Israel was above them and it stopped at the entrance to the eastern gate of the Lord's house. So the temple then, it lifts up from the direct part of the temple, moves out to the outside part of the temple, the east gate. That's where where the people would come in and receive forgiveness, etc. So it's moving, it's moving out. Skip to chapter 11, verse 22. Then the cherubim with the wheels beside them lifted their wings and the glory of the God of Israel was above them. The glory of the Lord rose up from within the city and stopped on the mountain east of the city. Notice it's completely left the temple. It's gone out to the city and the glory of the Lord departs. That is a vivid description of God leaving his people and leaving the land and they remembered that and they experienced that and the Babylonians come in and destroy them. And now he says, though, in mercy, I have returned to Jerusalem, to my people. The glory of the Lord has come back. Now, when? When? In part, when they rebuilt the temple, but they still felt like they were in exile. But I'll tell you when. Remember Jesus, when he entered into the temple? The glory of the Lord, the full glory of the Lord was there because Jesus is God. And the glory of the Lord was there, but he's also coming back someday. And then the full glory. So we see this eschatological understanding of this that we we dare not miss, okay? So the glory of the Lord, this is his promise. And then he he restores them. He says back in our passage, My house will be rebuilt within it. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies, and a measuring line will be stretched out over Jerusalem. So he's predicting that the house is going to be rebuilt. The temple's going to be rebuilt. And under Zechariah and Haggai, the prophets, under Zerubbabel, uh, the the temple is, is rebuilt. And so his promise is completed there. But we don't see the full glory yet. But here we see that he does establish them. He restores them. And finally, he prospers them. I like verse 17 the best, personally. Let me read it. <laughs> Proclaim further, this is what the Lord of armies says. My city, cities will again overflow with prosperity. The Lord will once more comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. In uh, Stephen Rummage's commentary on this, uh, he explains... He says, my cities will again overflow with prosperity. Uh, Though the towns of Judah were currently impoverished, 
God foretold a coming day when they would, in the most literal sense of the word, spread out with prosperity. The language paints a picture of towns that were so blessed with God's abundance that the city walls would not be able to hold all the wealth. This sounds like a good thing, right? It hasn't happened yet. This is a promise God makes to the people of Israel, and it has not happened yet. Now, they are back in their homeland, and they are doing pretty well, (laughs) but they do have everybody around them against them, and so I believe that this is going to fully be fulfilled when Jesus returns. And the glory of the Lord is there, and he blesses them with prosperity. But we are supposed to understand this in a literal sense. This is a promise to national ethnic Israel. All the way through the Bible, it speaks of this promise. Started out in Genesis chapter 12, where he promised to his uh, to Abraham what he was going to do. I want you to turn to First Chronicles 16, verses 14 through 18. Just one passage among many that we could see. The literalness of this promise. First Chronicles 16, verse 14. David is proclaiming this. He says, he is the Lord our God. His judgments govern the whole earth. So God is concerned about the whole earth. Remember his covenant forever. So how long does the covenant last? You guys are good. Okay. The promise he ordained for a thousand generations, that's just like saying for forever. He didn't contradict himself there. The covenant he made with Abraham swore to Isaac and confirmed to Jacob as a decree and to Israel as a permanent covenant. So now he's referring to the Abrahamic covenant and he calls it a permanent covenant. How long does it last then? Yeah, this in the Hebrew, this is berith olam. It's a covenant forever. That's what he says here. Now look at what a part of that promise entails, which we would, could see if we turned to uh, Genesis chapter 12. I will give the land of Canaan to you as your inherited portion. He's gonna, he promised him, I'm going to give you that land. This is your land. Now God can punish him and take the land away. And in fact, he did in 586 B.C. And he did again in 70 A.D., when he punished them because they rejected Jesus as their Messiah. So, but now they're back in their homeland again. And I think things are going to stir up. I think they're going to trust in Jesus. They're going to see. We'll see this when we, I can't wait till we get to Zechariah chapter 12. Okay, but it'll be a while. Okay, but we'll see this, okay? This plan that God has, but God is going to bless them. He's going to bring this out. He hasn't given up on them. He called them, and he does not revoke his callings, okay? Now, I'm gonna, not going to do the second vision because we're um, out of time, and uh, so I'll just have to figure out how to put that into the next week's message, okay? No problem, no problem. But uh, God is not finished with Israel yet. And God is not finished with the church. See, we are the people of God too because we've been grafted in, Romans chapter 11, okay? So God is not finished with us. We together are the people of God. We will see the signs of the end, of what the end will be like in this book, Zechariah, okay? Okay? that includes the greatest revival ever. 
So if we're living in that time, we'll actually get to experience it. But even if not, what revivals are supposed to look like. And revivals have happened over and over throughout church history because God's a revival God. And this is what he wants to do. So that's what we're going through this book to seek to find out. We're going to see the God of revival, Yahweh of the armies, our Father. Let me finish with J.I. Packer again here, okay? He says, the jealous God, doesn't it sound offensive? For we know jealousy, the green-eyed monster, as a vice, one of the most cancerous and soul-destroying vices that there is, whereas God, we are sure, is perfectly good. How then could anyone ever imagine that jealousy is found in him? The first step in answering this question is to make it clear that this is not a case of imagining anything. Were we imagining a God, then naturally we should ascribe to him only characteristics which we admired, and jealousy would not enter the picture. Nobody would imagine a jealous God, but we're not making up an idea of God by drawing on our imagination. We're seeking instead to listen to the words of Holy Scripture in which God himself tells us the truth about himself. For God, our creator, whom we could never have discovered by any exercise of imagination, has revealed himself. He has talked. He has spoken through many human agents and messengers and supremely through his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Nor has he left his messages in the memory of his mighty acts to be twisted and lost by the distorted processes of oral transmission. Instead, he has had them put on record in permanent written form. And there in the Bible, God's public record, as Calvin called it, we find God speaking repeatedly of his jealousy. Our God is a jealous God, and that is a good thing. Let's pray.